if you are in conflict with a decision that you need to make between policy or compassion, accountability, and professionalism, what is the value decision? Make the value decision. The Ethicist Corner, a new podcast brought to you by the Kegley Institute of Ethics. So uh, welcome to the Ethicist Corner, uh, a podcast in which we discuss ethics in everyday life. Uh, my name is Dr. Michael Burrows, uh, and my guest today is Chief Lyle Martin, former chief of police for the Bakersfield Police Department and now chief district attorney investigator for the Kern County District Attorney's Office. Uh, and Chief Martin is also a member of the KIE Board of Directors. We also have uh, Norma Hernandez with us, who is our podcast uh, producer. So, Chief, uh, to start, first of all, thanks for being with us, and we, we appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to chat. Well, thanks um, for having me. I'm excited about this. Yes. So you were you were born and you grew up in Bakersfield, is that right? Yes, born and raised right here in Bakersfield, southeast okay. Bakersfield. Okay. Kind of one of the lower social economic areas of of the city. Okay. But I've been here my entire life. So what you know you've been and you've made a career here too. What is what's kept you in Bakersfield over the years? I'm sure you've had probably lots of opportunities to. Go lots of different places. So, what what has kind of kept you rooted in this community? Um, the people. I mean, the heart and soul of the people here in, in Kern County and the Bakersfield community is we are a very giving community. And when people are in need, I mean, people don't hesitate to step up. Mm-hmm. And I, that feel of you know belonging and being able to help those who are less fortunate. I, I just have to stay home. I just love it here. Mm-hmm. And, and you, when you talk about, you know, kind of the people in the community, it makes me think about, I mean, your career. I mean, in a uh, uh, many decades career in policing and public service. So what led you to that career? I mean, what, what, what was it about policing and public service that you decided was going to be your, your profession? You know, um, my uncle was a Bakersfield police officer. And my grandfather was a police officer in Oklahoma, which I actually didn't know until I became a police officer. So my mom kind of says uh, that service is kind of in, in my blood. Um, actually, what a lot of people don't know, I talked to a lot of high school kids, is that I was going to be a registered nurse. Okay. And yeah. I was actually out here at Cal State Bakersfield and I was trying to get in the nursing program, but um, I wasn't the best student at the uh-huh. time. Uh-huh. So there was a, an anatomy class where... Um, you know, it was four days. I always went to lecture. I never went to lab. <laughs> and, you know, if I had read the syllabus a little closer, it talked about the uh, final one, 35% of that final, which ended up being what was called the bone in a bag test. Okay. So you had to stick your hand in a canvas bag, feel a bone from the human body, and tell the instructor what it was. Wow. Now, had I gone to lab... <laughs> You know, so I'm thinking, I've got 206 choices here. <laughs> so later on, one of my friends told me, you know, we only did five bones during lab. But, uh-huh. You know, I just panicked. I walked out of there and I went and changed my major. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought if I wasn't going to be dedicated to my craft, I probably ought not be uh, working on people in emergency rooms. So, yeah, I share that story. <laughs> That's funny. So, and, and when you, so I mean, I guess when I maybe a, uh... An example of a fortuitous time of not going to class, actually, given the career that it's led you to. But Yeah, but, you know, I've just always cared about people and wanted to help others. Yeah. And I've coached for almost yeah. 30 years. It's just it's just in my DNA, I yeah. guess. 
And so you started out as, I mean, correct me if I'm not using the terminology correctly, but you started out as a patrol officer, like on the street. Yes. And yes. then and you worked your way up all the way to the chief of police. Correct. Correct. And so I think people know you, obviously, as the chief of police, a very visible, prominent figure in our community. But I don't know if people know a lot about like the day-to-day life of a chief of police. <laughs> so like, what's an average day? Uh, as a chief of police, like take us through a day of your work. What would that look like? It's a 14, 16 hour day. So, you know, basically I'm going to have to get like workouts in and those things in before I'd go to work. I always try to get in the office between six and six thirty because it's kind of my quiet time. I can go through emails. I can start to try to prioritize some of the things that I would like to have on my schedule. But um, the reality is, is we are you know, 24 hours, seven day a week town, almost half a million people during the daytime. And sometimes things dictate what you're going to do that mm-hmm. day. Uh, but you're trying to be, you know, fiscally responsible and over a hundred million dollar budget, 700 employees. And you're going through everything from administrative issues to operational issues, fiscal issues. And then, um, you know, the community wants to see the chief out there visible. Mm-hmm. But also your employees want to see you as visible as well. So I had a, uh, a philosophy of management by walking around. It was not uncommon for me to do a sit along. I would go into our communication center and just sit next to employee and help them with the job that they were doing. Mm-hmm. Because I saw my role is and I told all my staff is they did not work for me. I worked for them. Mm-hmm. I saw my position as getting them the tools and resources that they needed to be successful to serve the public. Mm-hmm. In there by 6, 6.30, I would work generally until 5.36. And so you mentioned in your you know, your response there about kind of the the view of leadership and kind of guiding the, the officers you were, you know, leading your position as chief of police. And so I'm, I'm thinking a bit about, given the prominence of that leadership role, were there people in your life or both maybe close to you or from afar who kind of, served as exemplars for you and thinking about who you wanted to be as a leader, maybe both philosophically, like in terms of, you know, the, the attributes you wanted to aspire to, but maybe even also practically, like just kind of, these are useful things to think about <laughs> if you're leading a, a large group of people in an organization where there were the people who were helping. Yeah, I you. mean, throughout my career, you know, I was fortunate enough to run across some of those people. I think it, you know, started with my parents, obviously, and, and the background that they gave me. But then once I started going to school. I think the first teacher that I really remember was in seventh grade was uh, Larry Adams. And uh, Larry Adams would not let me get away with anything. He pushed and pushed and pushed because mm-hmm. um, academics actually came pretty easy to me. Mm-hmm. So I had uh, a tendency to try to squeak by. Mm-hmm. And at one point, he, he I remember him telling me this. My mom had told me this probably in fifth fourth, fifth grade. But then I remember Larry Adams saying, you're the laziest smart kid I've ever met. <laughs> and it resonated with me because I'd heard it at home. And now I'm hearing it. And he goes, and I'm going to ride you for the next two years that you're here at Emerson Junior High School. And at the time, I despised Larry Adams. But mm-hmm. I learned how to be respectful. I learned how to set goals. I learned mm-hmm. how to follow through and mm-hmm. those types of things and not take the easy way out. Yeah. And those things kind of resonated with me. So I tell people that anytime I meet someone named Larry, it means bad things for me. Right. <laughs> because when I got 
I was in the police academy, and I um, met a gentleman, Larry Robinson, and he always worked with the police department in regards to cultural diversity, and then he was a professor at Bakersfield College, and I remember him coming up to me. We were at lunch inside the uh, cafeteria, and we struck up a conversation, and we started talking about, you know, life and goals and those types of things, and at the time, you know, I really, you know, I'm 21 years old, really don't know what I want to do. I just know I want to be a police officer, mm -hmm. and we developed a relationship, and then um, kind of the same thing, because I hadn't finished my degree yet. And Larry started writing, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do this. And, you know, you can't be lazy. There are people who are watching you. You have this responsibility. Mm -hmm. So I went on and finished my associates, finished my bachelor's, um, you know, got involved in the community because of Larry Robinson. And he pushed, pushed, pushed. <clears throat> so I think I was either a sergeant or a lieutenant. And I got introduced to Dr. Larry Ryder who's the former um, superintendent for the Kern County superintendent of schools. And we developed a relationship. And then he started talking about getting a master's degree and pursuing a doctorate mm -hmm. and, and giving back. And one of Larry Ryder's biggest things is there's no right way to do the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And he started talking about ethical leadership and how you need to do things and how to lead large organizations. Mm -hmm. So I went back and got my master's and, you know, completed all my coursework for my doctorate, just haven't written the dissertation. And every time I see Larry, he's like, I think you have some writing to do. So I tell people <laughs> the three Larrys in my life have kind of pushed me yeah. to do some of these things. And then, you know, with my parents and there was lots of people inside the, the organization right. who invested in me. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, I mean, so many people, I mean, there's a number of great examples you provide there, but talk about the influence of educators in their life, right? I think probably all of us have... <laughs> That teacher. I mean, for me, I'm thinking about Miss McLeod in fifth grade, who I was both terrified of, yeah, <laughs> but also knew that I also knew that she like loved us, yeah. right? And so it was like this this fear and this tremendous respect, you know, um, very old school kind of teacher, but someone who I think like you, I I was not I was not extremely academically motivated as a young person, but um, she was able to kind of get the best out of me, you know. Um, so you mentioned uh, ethical leadership in your answer too, and I I want to tease this a little bit. So we're we're going to be talking with Chief Martin next uh, uh, February twelfth next week at six p.m. at the CSUB Library about ethics and leadership, and um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the role of ethics in your conception of leadership, uh, in your role, in your current role, or your or your role as as previous role as chief of police. And if you wouldn't mind maybe even giving an example of like, you know, maybe to kind of take it out of the clouds a bit, like what is a way in which ethics shows up in, in your profession and, and, and maybe uh, what does that look like kind of on the ground for you in, in your work? You know, um, as I went through the police department, you know, I think policing every 10 or 15 years has its transformation because we tend to be behind what society or how the social norms, if you will, you know, we enforce the law, you know, mm -hmm. and we're always told, well, we don't write the laws, we just enforce the laws. And, you know, you shouldn't be mad at the police, you should be mad at you know, whoever, your congressman, your assembly person, those types of things. And as I traveled around the country, I realized that the context that I have being born and raised in California 
is totally different than the context in the southeast or in you know on the east coast or the midwest and i started to talk to people about their feelings about police and policing and what that meant from an ethical standpoint mm -hmm. so then i started teaching in the academies and teaching younger officers and i took it back to the social contract because i would explain to officers that you know historically we were kind of told you know we're going to tell you how you're going to be policed we're not going to ask you how you would like to be policed this is what we do so we talked about from a basic standpoint from an ethical standpoint is the social contract is citizens give up certain basic rights so we as government or police can act on their behalf mm -hmm. and then i would add so with that being said they get a say so and how that what that looks like mm -hmm. and historically that wasn't the case mm -hmm. So as we started to try to change the thinking process of our agency, when I became chief, you know, we had mission statements and vision statements, but for the first time we went outside of the organization. So I tasked two different groups, an internal group that employees picked across different um, job titles, whether you're a sworn officer or a clerk, and asked them to come up with a mission statement. Mm -hmm. Unbeknownst to them, I went out and got community leaders and asked them what would a mission statement look like for their police department. Mm -hmm. And what was surprising to me was that there were, we only had to go back for two edits because that's how close we were in our beliefs of what it should look like and mm -hmm. what the mission statement should look mm -hmm. like. So then we came up with what should be our guiding values. And each group came up with five. Well, three of them were on both lists. So mm -hmm. we came up with compassion, accountability, and professionalism. So from an ethical standpoint, I talked to the entire organization about decision-making. Between laws, policies, procedures, the book is huge. Mm -hmm. And the expectation is that you know all of them. You know, we even have you sign a document. I've read them all. I understand them all. Right. Is that reality? So going to the organization, whether you're working the front counter or you're out at a car stop at 2 in the morning, they were tasked with, and I told them the expectation is this. If you are in conflict with a decision that you need to make between policy or compassion, accountability, and professionalism, what is the value decision, make the value decision. Mm -hmm. And then come back and tell us that the policy is in conflict, it's incongruent with our values. I can change the policy, mm -hmm. but I can't go back and change the influence of that decision that you made out there at 2 in the morning that affected one of our citizens or one of our residents or people who, you know, our neighbors. Right. And I think that's what kind of got the momentum as to where we went and kind of defined my um, time as chief because the community started to see that and the officers started to see that and they saw mm -hmm. that the community backed them when they were making value mm -hmm. decisions versus policy decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's interesting. There's a number of interesting things there. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking... The first part of your discussion there, you were talking about kind of working with the community to develop kind of like a, a share, a mutually understood kind of mission statement and values that would both guide your practice as a police force, but then also be something that had, you know, the community understanding and backing behind it. Um, 
and I'm wondering, like, when you make, you know, when you make these t- difficult decisions as as a police chief, how do you balance getting buy-in from those around you, including your community, and also the need for you as the head of the organization to make a decision? <laughs> like, how do you balance that? Because it seems like that can be pretty challenging. Um, I think the one word that helps with that is trust. And trust isn't built overnight. It's built over a career. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I would tell people throughout my career, you know, if you don't want to know what I think, don't ask. Because I'm going to be brutally honest with with people regardless of what it was. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's ever changed with me. So people knew that if I was telling them something... It was the truth. Mm-hmm. It may not, you may not agree with it. We can discuss the the nuances or whatever, but what I'm telling you is the truth. Mm-hmm. So when I made a decision that may not have been popular with the troops, they would back me based on, you know, I guess we call it that emotional and um, intellectual bank account. Okay, we know he's trying to make the best decision with mm-hmm. the information that he has right now, and mm-hmm. he's telling us the truth. Mm-hmm. And it was the same thing with the community. When I go to community meetings, there would be some tough conversations that would have had to be had, where maybe previously other leadership would just kind of shy away from those conversations. Well, you know, that's really not how we are, but if that's how they feel, we're not going to challenge it. Right. Or those types of things. So, um, you know, it just... It took a while to make that transition and to kind of get the buy-in, but the community wants to be safe and they want to feel safe, but they also want to make sure that they can trust the the men and women who are wearing the badges and have the authority and the power to act in their best mm-hmm. interest. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, whether I was talking to a community meeting or talking to um, the folks that worked with me, I would tell them, at the end of the day, that's my name at the top of that document and that's my signature at the mm-hmm. bottom. I have to live with this. Right. And I, I never took that lightly. Yeah, and that's interesting. I mean, it makes me it thinks when you talk about making these these challenging ethical decisions or, you know, of course which they come up in the course of your work, the ethics of it is not just about the decision you're making in that moment, but it's also about kind of like the background trust and community building you've done that provides context for that decision. Correct. And I think right. that's that's something actually when we teach professional ethics and you know work with organizations around ethics, it's it's a similar type of idea where when you look at ethics scandals that happen, say financial ethical scandals, um, Wells Fargo or you know um, many other cases you can look at, all, yeah. right? I mean, there's there's an issue of decisions that are being made, but there's an issue of the culture in the place, yes. right? That's allowing <laughs> the decisions to happen. So exactly. you can't really see those as fully separate, and that's that's interesting. Yeah, we talk about that. Um... Because I would tell them that my goal was to make sure that if I left, there were eight to ten people who could step into that position. If mm-hmm. not, I hadn't done my job. Yeah. And over and over, time and time again, I told people, if you're in a leadership position, you have to create a culture where people feel comfortable bringing you bad news. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, you're going to have that scandal. This thing is going to happen where you empower people to hold each other accountable at the lowest level in the organization. Mm-hmm. And... I always use the um, example of when the first job that I had was first real official job was bagging groceries and we were the closing shift and the guy who trained me was my high school buddy and he says hey every night we have to do these seven things on this list that have to be done okay he goes now 
I can't remember the guy's name. I think it was Bill. Bill is the morning manager. Bill only checks these four in the morning. Those are his pet peeves. He only checks these four. At the time, it meant nothing to me, and I went on about it. But now I use that in in my conversations when in my classroom and in the organization. I said, what was that guy really telling me? Mm-hmm. You're supposed to do these seven things, but you don't have to do these three. So in a broader context, the person who you select to introduce into the organization, which then we call our field training officer, that first FTO is far more important than I am as the chief Mm -hmm. because they are learning what the culture is the second they get in that car and that FTO tells them, well, we're supposed to do this, but we never do. Mm -hmm. And if those are the conversations that are going on, we go to the academies and I've talked to over like 300 police chiefs and I've been training police chiefs. Now more of them teach in the academy. I was the only one at four years ago that was going to the academy. I said, what's the highest rank that teaches in your police academy? Oh, it's a lieutenant. Most of them are around lieutenant. I said, why is that? Uh, we're busy. We have these things. You said, isn't it important for an employee, they're new to your organization to know what the CEO's expectations are. Right. And I would tell them, if somebody tells you to do something that is incongruent with anything that I've said in this three-hour block, it is your responsibility to walk into my office, no one else's, and tell me. And that's happened. Mm-hmm. So first, it's your responsibility to tell that employee, hey, that's not what Chief Martin said. And then it's your responsibility to come tell me. And if you create that environment it will start to resonate and those things don't rise to that level. Right. They don't have those issues. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, so I want to uh, maybe transition now to uh, a final part that we'd like to do in the podcast, which is kind of just a, uh, we call it like a lightning round in there. That kind of just fun <laughs> questions, short answer questions. Um, feel free to pass if you, if you don't want to answer one, but they're not, they're not particularly controversial or anything. Um, so, uh, uh, the first question is, uh, what was the last movie you saw, and did you like it? Wow. I <laughs> I, I can't tell you the last movie I saw. We don't watch very – I don't watch very many movies. I don't get a chance to. I guess it would have been the last – well, it wouldn't even be the last one. The last Star Wars, actually. Okay. Yeah. I took the kids to this last Star Wars. I don't know if I liked it because I fell asleep. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> What was your favorite class as a university student? Um, I think my, my favorite class was uh, business economics. Okay. Uh, if you could have dinner with anyone, past or present, who would it be and why? Jesus Christ. Um, when you think about ethics and struggles and sticking to your guns and putting the needs of others ahead of yourself, that, that just that's a no-brainer for me. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite thing about living in Bakersfield? The people. The people. I just love the people here. And what is one thing you will miss most about serving as chief of police? Um, I didn't think this was would be my answer. As you mentioned that, is not getting called at 2 in the morning. Not getting called at 2 in the morning. Yeah, I, yeah I, that's I, good. I'm checking my yeah. phone when yeah. I wake up. Yeah. My, my wife's yeah. like, yeah. Uh, there's nothing there. That's yeah. that. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I didn't think I would miss that, yeah. but I miss it. Okay, there you go. It is interesting, yeah. 
And so, and I'll add one more here. What, are, what is one thing you're most excited, excited about in your new role? Um, being able to uh, create a new culture. Um, D.A. Zimmer kind of told me what her overarching goals were and then said, I'm going to get out of your way. So I'm excited to be able to kind of create that or replicate some of the things that I did at the PD, but it's a little different. Got you. Awesome. Well, Chief Martin, thanks so much for being with us and for spending time and chatting with us today. And um, we're really looking forward to spending time with you next week, too, for our ethics and leadership conversation. Thanks for having me. Hopefully there's no biology or anatomy questions <laughs> no. on Wednesday. We'll keep those <laughs> out. Because I will fail we'll miserably. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. The next edition of the KAIE Ethics and Leadership will feature Chief Martin on Wednesday, February 12th in the Walter Stern Library at 6 p.m. The event is free and open to the public. Thank you, and we'll see you there.